the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Joshua. Praise to the God who reigns above. The children of Israel had finally made it into the land of promise. They were going to enter into all that God had given them by putting God first and conquering the land the way He would show. God did the miraculous by stopping the Jordan River and letting the people cross on dry ground. They took up twelve stones as a memorial for what God had done. Their first obstacle in the land of Canaan was to defeat the walled city of Jericho. But they prepared themselves for war in a very different way than how most armies would usually prepare. We see this as we join Pastor Will in Joshua chapter 5, verse 1. Remember the whole theme of the book of Joshua is victory in Jesus. When Jesus cried out, it is finished, he won something so powerful for us that now we're to walk in that victory by faith. And Joshua has been a good handbook on how to live the victorious Christian life. It started with a a conscious decision to get into the battle. Joshua was told by the Lord, get up, get into the battle. It's time to start marching toward the enemy. That's every day. It has to start like that. Jesus said, occupy till I come. Every day we wake up, Jericho is waiting right over the river and we have to get up and start marching toward the enemy. And secondly, then we must be strengthened strengthened by God and courageous to march toward the enemy. He said, be strong and courageous, which means be strengthened and courageous, Joshua. And then as we're marching toward the enemy, we need to live by faith and not by sight. They had to go over the Jordan River, right? By faith and not by sight. And they had to let God take the lead. Those are the lessons we've learned so far. And now those are all good things, but they're all kind of ideals. They're a little bit nebulous. Where do I go from there though? You know, it's not very specific. At this point, Joshua needs specifics because they've followed God across the Jordan. Now they're in enemy territory. Jericho is right in front of them. How are they going to take the city? It would seem like the next step would be to make some battle plans, right? But as we'll see today, the next principle is not to make battle plans, but it's to not worry about the specifics you can't know, but to do the specifics you already do know. How many of you ever struggle with worry? You know, I'm right there with you. So many times those things are in the distance, right? They may not always be far in the distance, but there's something in the distance. And the Lord says, I've given you this to think on right now. And we're going, that's fine, Lord, but this is the thing I'm concerned with. It's funny when I began to start writing and I went to my first writer's conference, they said, write what you know. Don't try to figure it out, you know, what the market is doing or this or that. Just write what you know. Write what's on your heart. Write what you're passionate about. And that's how you'll begin to grow. And as a Christian, it's, it's a little bit similar in that sense that you start with what you know. You can't worry about what you don't know, but you work on what you do know that's right in front of you right now. And in chapter 5, we're going to see that that's the next thing that God tells Joshua to do. 
So chapter 5, verse 1, it says, And it came to pass, when all the kings of the Amorites, which were on the side of the Jordan westward, the side Israel's on now, and all the kings of the Canaanites, which were by the sea, by the Mediterranean Sea, when they heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of Jordan from before the children of Israel, until we had crossed over, that their heart melted, neither was their spirit in them anymore, because of the children of Israel. Now here we see the, the two factions that were there in the land right now. You had the Amorites, which lived in the hill country that's directly in front of Israel. Israel's in the Jordan River Valley right now. It runs north and south. And then right in front of them, you've got the hills of Judea. They are massive. They're tall. I remember one of my favorite things when we toured over there was just driving down the road that goes right down and follows the Jordan. And as you're going down there, you just the entire view on the right is these just mountains. Up in those hills, dug in, and these fortified positions are where the Amorites are, a very warlike group. They'd already fought them with King Sihon and King Og and Bashan. But then the Canaanites, they're a group that was a seafaring, they're traders, more traders than warriors, and they lived on the coastline area. That's what the Philistines were. And although the Philistines obviously became more warlike later on. But at this point in time, it was kind of this loose pact that these two groups had together. The Amorites provided military protection and the Canaanites supplied the goods. It was only a loose pact, I say, however, because they actually never team up to fight against Israel together. It's interesting how the whole situation works with Joshua and the people coming into the land. We see these conglomeration of kings in the south and kings in the north, but they all don't get together to defend themselves against Israel. They don't use those superior numbers in the fight. Now, the real reason, of course, is not because they were different people groups, but it's because of what it says here, right? Because God made them terrified of standing up to Israel through all the miracles that he did. The reputation preceded them that the Lord was fighting for them. And so it says that their hearts melted, neither was their spirit in them anymore. And the word melted, of course, it's when a solid becomes a liquid. And when you pair it with the word for human heart in the Hebrew, it means to be in a state where you're so discouraged or so anxious that you can't fight back. You ever been in that before? You have that kind of anxiety attack or that panic attack, you know, where you're just frozen? That's where they're at right now. They're just frozen. They can't think. They can't make battle plans. They can't do anything. For it says, neither was their spirit in them anymore. The word spirit there means a state of confidence in the face of danger. When things come into our lives and we're like, ooh, that's going to be interesting. But then you think, okay, well, we've got this thing to take care of that. And we've got this backup plan, whatever. Okay, I think we're all right, right? You have a little bit of confidence. They had no reason for confidence when and the God that's fighting for Israel can dry up seas and rivers. No confidence whatsoever to face this danger. They had no confidence they could win this fight due to that overwhelming anxiety of facing an army whose God actually fought with them. Now, the spies already knew from Rahab that the people of Jericho felt this way, but no one knew that it had gotten worse after the whole Jordan crossing, the whole parting of the Jordan River. For all Israel knew, the Canaanites, their enemies, could be planning to attack them while they're exposed there on the plain to drive them back into the river, which is what makes the rest of this chapter so awesome. Joshua tells us what the situation was, but no one in Israel knows that. For all they know, battle is looming around every corner, around every sunset, every moment the enemy could be coming because they are in enemy territory now. Even though Israel, though, they didn't know that this was going on, they still chose to make obedience their top priority because the top priority wasn't Jericho right now. It was two other things. And the first one 
was to circumcise the people. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, wait a second, circumcised? I thought that was something they kind of already did. That's way back with Abraham. That was the sign of the covenant that God gave to Abraham, right? You're correct. But look at what it says here, verse two. And at that time, when the people of Canaan are despairing, and Israel doesn't know it, but they're despairing. At that time, the Lord said unto Joshua, I want you to make you sharp knives and circumcise again the children of Israel the second time. Now, this is fascinating to me because the time period this is going on is a bronze time period. So weaponry, things like that, or they're not made of iron yet. They're made of bronze and things like that. But the word here for sharp knives, it means flint knives which was made from chunks of hard quartz. There's no modern weaponry here, base. This is very primitive in what God's asking them to do. You have to remember, there's no like West Jordan Valley Walmart right there, you know, they can go to. I need a couple knives from the $1.99 aisle, you know, or something like that. They didn't have that option in front of them. They didn't have resources. So whatever weapons they had picked up along the way or purchased or gotten from their enemies, it's not like they had these things at their disposal. They've got to go do it this way. Now, it's interesting when it says here, circumcise again the children of Israel the second time, you might be thinking to yourself, ooh, isn't one time enough? Trust me, it is. It's plenty. One time is plenty. But that's not what this means. The phrase circumcise again means return to circumcision. Tell them they need to return to circumcision. Tell the children of Israel they need to return to a circumcision a second time. What do you mean the second time? When's the first time? Well, we'll we'll get back to that in a little bit. So, verse 3, we see they're obedient. And Joshua made him sharp knives. And these are adults that he's circumcising right now. These are not just kids. These are not babies. These are full-grown men that are experiencing this beautiful thing. Joshua made him sharp knives and circumcised the children of Israel. And notice here we have this beautiful place called Gibeath Haraloth. And if you have an old King James version, they decide to translate it for you. The hill of the foreskins. That is definitely not one of our tour stops when we go to Israel. We don't have you go there and say, if you dig hard enough, you can find a souvenir. When they named things back then, they didn't always name it because of beauty or wonder, but sometimes because of commitment. My daughter asked me last night, she goes, Dad, what's Ebenezer mean? Because she heard it in a song. I said, that's a great question. I shared the story with her about Samuel and how after they defeated the Philistines for the first time, they built this stone there to remind them, thus far has the Lord led us. It was for two purposes. One, so Israel would never become so discouraged again because they could see that the God had whooped the Philistines before, but also they would never become prideful and they would think they did it on their own. It always reminded that the Lord had led them to this point and that if they would keep trusting him, he would lead them to new things as well. And you know, it's good to have those things. I don't recommend naming that place the Hill of the Foreskins, but if you have a moment with the Lord where he's done something in your life or you've made a fresh commitment to him, I think it's important to memorialize that in some way so you don't forget. Now, you might be saying, okay, so what's this first time, though? Why is this called the second time? Well, verse 4 explains why they needed to commit or return to circumcision this second time. Verse 4. And this is the cause why Joshua did circumcise. For all the people that came out of Egypt that were males, even all the men of war, they died in the wilderness, by the way, after they came out of Egypt. Now, all the people that came out were circumcised, but all the people that were born in the wilderness by the way as they came forth out of Egypt, them they had not circumcised. That is mind-blowing to me, that for 40 years in the wilderness, seeing the presence of God, Israel flat out disobeyed God in this very important command, flat out ignored him. On the one hand, it's mind-boggling to me, 
how Moses tolerated this. I think, Moses, why didn't you deal with this? I mean, that's just a big deal. I mean, these guys wouldn't have had to go through it when they were adults if they had been doing it as parents. But on the other hand, it's not like a person's circumcision status was openly observable. People weren't running around naked. It's not like Moses was doing circumcision checks. People were saying, wow, this is a great night, Pastor Will. <laughs> it gets better, I promise. It is possible that they lied to Moses about it. Either way, though, it's a massive failure on the part of the nation. Now, the first time that Israel committed to this as a nation was at the start, way back at the founding of their nation. Go to Genesis 17 with me. So I think we need to read it to understand why this was so important to do before they begin to take the land. Genesis 17. Now, God had promised Abraham. He said, Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. I'm going to give you this land. This is the covenant that I'm making with you. And Abraham thought to himself, I've got no descendants. And the Lord said, I'm going to give you a descendant. I'm going to give you many descendants. He says to him, the big one, he says, look now toward heaven and tell the stars if you be not able to number them. And he said unto him, so shall your seed be. And that great moment in Genesis 15, not 17, but 15, 6, we're in 17. I'm just giving you some background. In Genesis 15, 6, it says, and Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. He put all his trust in the Lord for everything in that moment. But you know, even after you get saved, sometimes later on, you don't trust the Lord, right? And so in chapter 16, we have the great failure of Abraham where Sarah comes to him and says, listen, I'm not getting any younger. I've been barren my whole life. You're not getting any younger. So why don't you go in unto my handmaid and raise up a seed through her and then that'll be our descendant. And it happens. Hagar gets pregnant with Ishmael and Ishmael, for all Abraham's purposes, becomes his heir. He's gonna be the one that he believes will be the covenant son. But the Bible tells us that for 13 years, Abraham's just really not walking with the Lord. And so in chapter 17, the Lord says, enough's enough. It says, and when Abram was 90 years old and nine, 99 years old, that the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am El Shaddai, the almighty God, the one who can do anything, the one who doesn't need your help. Walk before me and be thou perfect. Abraham, you've been limping along this whole time, not really walking with me, not doing things my way, doing things your own way. It's time to stop. It's time to start walking with me again. It's time to start being mature, walking rightly. And now I will make my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father, not just of one nation, he says, but many nations. Neither shall your name any more be called Abram, but your name shall be, shall be Abraham, for a father of many nations have I made you. And I will make you exceeding fruitful, and I will make, make nations of you, and kings shall come out of you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto you and to your seed after you. And I will give unto you and to your seed after you the land wherein you are a foreigner right now, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. That's what God says. That's my part. That's what I promise to do. Now, here's Abraham's part. God has said unto Abraham, you shall keep my covenant, therefore, you and your seed after you in their generations. That's all you got to do. You've got you to keep your side of the deal. You need to be walking in relationship with me. You know, like he says here, walk before me and be thou perfect. Now, verse 10, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your seed after you. It's really simple. Every man child among you shall be circumcised and you shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you. Every man child in your generation, he that is born in your house, he that's bought with any money of any foreigner, which is not of your seed, he that's born in your house, and he that is bought with your money must needs be circumcised. 
And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. That's the deal. You do this. That's all I'm asking for you to do. That this will be a visible sign of the internal commitment you have to me in your heart. That you will do this. All right, Abraham? Now here, verse 14 is the consequence. He says, and the uncircumcised man, child, whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. In other words, he cannot be part of this deal. Now you've got an entire generation that's not circumcised. That's a big deal, isn't it? An entire generation ignored this thing. Why such a heavy penalty for not being circumcised? Because circumcision symbolized a life separated to God. In the New Testament, it talks about us circumcising our hearts, our lives not to be lived for ourselves and in our own strength and and the way we want to, but rather our lives and our hearts to be set apart to God. Like Abraham, to walk before him and be perfect, to be blameless, to go on to maturity. That's what God calls us to do. The circumcision of our hearts, it's crucial, it's important. And if if you're not gonna have a circumcised heart before the Lord, then guess what? You're gonna be walking in your flesh. You're gonna be living life your way. You're not gonna be going on to maturity. You're gonna be like Abraham was for these 13 years until you deal with that. So this was a big deal. If the covenant of them getting the land, God's part saying, I'll give them the land, was contingent upon them being circumcised, how can they move forward if they've not been obedient there? Because the reality is to disobey this simple command meant you were unwilling to follow the rest of God's commands. And therefore, you were in rebellion to God instead of in a right relationship with him. Now, when you read the rest of the chapter, we won't do it tonight. But when you do, you see that Abraham did what God said. When God commanded Abraham to do this, he obeyed. And for 400 years, the nation obeyed God. Even in their enslavement, they didn't forget this. They obeyed God. But this shows just how rebellious the nation became after God delivered them from Egypt, after they were set free. When they had God in their midst, they ignored him. Verse 6, back in Joshua 5. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people that were men of war which came out of Egypt were consumed because they obeyed not the voice of the Lord unto whom the Lord swear that he would not show them the land which the Lord swear unto their fathers that he would give us a land that flows with milk and honey. Despite all God's goodness, despite all God's promises, this generation refused to trust and obey the Lord. And ask you tonight, does that describe your life? Let's not have that be our testimony that we are those who refuse to trust and obey the Lord. Don't we have precious promises? Hasn't God been good to us? We have lots of reasons to trust and obey the Lord. So let's be those who have done that. If that has been the way you've been living, you know, you've been doing things your own way, been in rebellion to the Lord, refusing to trust and obey God, then fix it. (laughs) Verse seven, and their children whom he raised up in their place, them Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not circumcised them by the way in the wilderness, on the way to the promised land. They did not. It's interesting, the he there, for they were not, I'm sorry, and their children whom he raised up in their stead, them Joshua circumcised. The he there is God. God raised up that new generation so that they would take the land and experience all of his promises. Listen, here's the truth of scripture. If you refuse to trust God and experience his blessings, he's gonna give them to someone else who will. That's what the parable of the talents teaches us, right? Remember, what did he say to the one guy who got the one talent at the end? Had the guy with the five talents and he had turned it into 10. And then he said, oh, you've been faithful over little. I'll make you faithful over much. And then the guy had two talents. He turned it into five and, or four. I can't remember what it was. And he said, oh, you've been faithful over a little. I'll make you faithful over much. Enter into the joy of your Lord. 
And the one guy comes, he goes, Lord, I know that you're a hard man. That's not true. God's not a hard man. And I know that you, you gather where you don't plant. You're just you know, meticulous about everything. So I didn't want to mess this up. So I just went and buried it and didn't do anything with it. I wasn't faithful with it, but here it is returned to you. And you know what the Lord said to him? Matthew 25, I think it's verse 28. Take therefore the talent from him and give it unto him which has 10 talents. That's what he said. You know, if you're going to rebel against the Lord, I, I tell you, I'm not trying to be critical when I say this. I have people come to me all the time and say, I've got a call upon my life to be a minister. I've got a call upon my life to be an evangelist. I've got a call upon my life to be a missionary. And they can't even answer the call to pastor their family, to be in the word with their wife or to pray with their kids. Listen, God's not going to all of a sudden give you 10 cities if you can't manage one. I don't often look for people who are talented or gifted, even though, you know, if someone has a talent or gift, that's wonderful. I'm just looking for people who show up. I'm looking for people who are taking time away from their lives to invest into their own families and then to invest into the other people of God or their community, their work environment. Those are folks I look at and go, Lord, what might you have in store for them someday? Because they're already being faithful with what's right in front of them. My very first pastor always used to say, you can say amen or oh me. Hopefully you can say amen. Now verse eight says, it came to pass when they had done circumcising all the people that they abode in their places in the camp till they were whole, <laughs> till they had recovered or healed up. It's a painful experience for an adult to be circumcised. But you had a commission for about three days. You actually develop a fever. Um, it's, uh, it's not an easy situation to go through. I think it's important to remember how this chapter started, right? What did God say? All the Canaanites were fearful. So even though Israel was vulnerable during this time, the people of Canaan couldn't take advantage of it because they were terrified, absolutely terrified. See, God has everything covered, doesn't he? He has everything covered. So you and I can always trust him. This would seem like a good point to move on to the next topic, but God has one more important thing to say to Joshua about this whole circumcision experience first. Look at verse nine. And the Lord said unto Joshua, so after he'd been obedient, he says, this day have I rolled away the reproach of Egypt from off you, wherefore the name of the place is called Gilgal unto this day. And Gilgal is something we do point out when we go on our trip to Israel. Uh, We don't point out the hill of the other place we won't name. But here it says that the word Gilgal means rolling away, which is the phrase here, rolling away. It means to remove from one sight. And the Lord said unto Joshua, this day have I removed from my sight the reproach of Egypt, the shame, the dishonor, the low status of Egypt. What did that mean? See, while in Egypt, Israel had become like the Egyptians, so much so that they forgot the Lord. They worshiped idols, they lived in sin. And then when God rescued them from Egypt, It was to take the shame of that old life away and bring them into obedience. But the first generation never experienced that. They may have left Egypt, but sadly, Egypt never left them. It never left them. And so this was the last clean break from that mindset. One that wasn't easy to live out, getting circumcised as adults. But the new generation did it anyway. And as a result, this place gets a special name, Gilgal, the place of removal of shame. God's full blessing could now rest upon the nation because of their obedience. And you know, I was listening to Alan Redpath talk about this, and he said, we have everything we need in Christ. Christ won the full victory for us. But if you and I are going to experience Christ's victory, we need God's full, ever-pleasant blessing upon what we're doing. Do you see the difference there? Like we're in Christ, we're, we're saved. We can always come to the Father. We have everything we need in Christ. But that doesn't mean God's gonna bless everything we do, especially if what we're doing is wrong, right? I can't go out and say, well, yep, I'm gonna cheat on my wife, but God's gonna bless me. Now, you can't say that. 
Oh, yep, I'm just going to, you know, ignore the scriptures, but God's going to bless me. You, you can't say that. Remember in James, what does it say? Let him ask in faith, nothing doubting. For if the man doubts, let him not think he'll receive anything from God. It doesn't mean God won't give you anything. It means you just can't have the same expectation that a child of God who's trusting God can have. While Christ's full obedience to the Lord secured God's full blessing for us, we don't have to do anything to earn it. We can inhibit that blessing by rebelling against what we know God wants us to do. So let's not do that. God longs to bless us with more of his presence in our lives. He wants to lead us and guide us to the good things he has in store for us. But we can inhibit his work when we fail to obey God in the little things. When we don't trust him in what he has already told us to do in his word, we can miss out on a life lived in the victory of Christ. Let's not miss out. Run to God, trust and obey Him, and watch Him conquer all the battles that life brings us. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.